Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris's troisième arrondissement. So let me, I want to welcome from uh, Park City, Utah, I believe, where there is no snow on the ground today. Or is there? Oh, there's snow up in the hill. There's plenty of snow. Okay. Uh, Michael uh, Michael Finkel. Michael, uh, welcome to Paris, if only metaphorically. Uh, I mean, I wish, they, I, wish I was there more uh, re, more realistically, unfortunately. Oh, you uh, can come. You know, the, the doors are open. We're still welcoming Americans. It's not a problem. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's going to get worse. I mean, more and more are going to want to come here, <laughs> given the current state of affairs. I'm not sure if recording or not. Do you know that I lived in uh, in southern France for about seven years with my family? So, toute ma famille parle français. Oh, c'est bien. Et vous parlez français aussi. Mais la plupart de mes lecteurs, uh, uh, non. We're going to do this in English because uh, the uh, no, it's it's recording. So, if okay. we, so anyway, uh, the name of the book is The Art Thief. Uh, ah. Stefan Bright Weiser, if we want to use the proper Alsacian pronunciation, and and Catherine Kleinklaus, who, if I remember from reading the book correctly, managed to steal uh, around two billion dollars worth of art. Is that a fair statement? They, I mean, they stole from more than 200 museums and churches, 300, pe 300 pieces of Renaissance art and with a value of up to $2 billion. It's almost uh, mind, it's mind blowing, really. Yes. And uh, all stored in the attic in, uh, in Marais Stengel, no relation to Casey Stengel's home, <laughs> his mother. Yeah, I mean, the reason why I love this uh, story and became obsessed with it wasn't just the uh, crazy quantity of thefts. It wasn't just the prolificness. It was also the ra the reasoning, which was just to surround themselves with beauty or, or so they said. And then I liked their methodology, which was daytime thefts without using violence or even the threat of violence. So all that melange of the three things, the, you know, the quantity, the sure. rationale, the aesthetic desire, and also the whole mother girlfriend uh, thief trying love triangle uh just i mean it's journalistic oh, cabinet. No, it, it, it's great you know and she wasn't even jewish the mother <laughs> <laughs> the uh but they bear no relationship to the uh the uh cinematic jewel thieves like uh, uh audrey hepburn and peter o'toole uh this is a little bit of the uh, nuts and bolts world just before we talk about them how much art is stolen annually so the whole world of art is a little bit shrouded in mystery. It's one of the, one of them, you know, poking into the world, the art world. It's like the more you poke, the less everything is clear. And I think just with lots of wealthy people running around, I think the whole entire market uh, is uh, benefited by being as uh, shrouded in mystery as possible. So that was just a long way of saying nobody's exactly sure. The people that really track art th th thievery say that it is, quote, one of the biggest uh, elite Stolen art is one of the biggest uh, illegal games in the world, right up there with money, with uh, drug running and illegal arms. So billions of dollars worth of art are stolen each year. The vast majority, not what you're thinking, maybe these great museum heists, but really most art is stolen from private homes hanging on the wall where it's a little less guarded than it is in a museum. That's not what... Uh, my protagonist. Uh, well, you know, and uh, it, it's speaking of that, I mean, you want to you want to fence some raw diamonds, you know, some guy in New York in a bar can work with you. But how, how do you fence a Mona Lisa, for example? And what, in other words, I, let's talk about the psychology of what goes 
Let's well, let's be very specific now. Let's talk about Stefan and then Catherine. To some degree, he's an autodidact when it comes to art. Uh, reading uh, the Benazit Dictionary of Art. Uh, what what was it that uh, took this relatively ordinary, uh, simple guy from uh, you know from Mulhouse or near Mulhouse and in, into this renowned? Not only did he steal, but he stole great pieces with great knowledge. Right. So Stefan Breitwieser was not a, an art expert, not a, a professor of art. I think he comes by his aesthetic taste sort of the, probably the most interesting way, which is naturally he was, as his, as both his father and his mother confirmed, sort of from youngest possible age, sort of in love with objects, a true aesthete. And yes, I love that term that you just, just used, uh, autodidact. So he said to me, we had about 50, 40 to 50 hours worth of one-on-one -on -one interviews from the first American journalist that he's, that he's spoken to. He told me that he you know, fell in love with objects from the youngest age possible and stole things or took things purely out of aesthetic desire. And then after stealing something out of like emotional aesthetic desire, then would backfill do tons of research, like you mentioned, the Benzit uh, Dictionary of, uh, of of Art, would learn everything there was to learn pretty much after he stole uh, something. So he, he, he stole out of uh, emotion and and then added to his research, then added the intellectual components. Oh, let's tell, let's mention Benzit because I'm showing off. I read your book, so I know what the Benzit Dictionary of Art is, but I didn't know Bupkis before I read your book. So <laughs> to those of us who are equally as ignorant as I, what is the Benzit Dictionary of Art? I mean, listen, Terrence, I didn't know what it was either until I, until <laughs> I started doing research. Like, if That's I why you write books, to learn something. It, it, I mean, if you're not, if I'm not going to educate myself, then who else? Um, exactly. I, I, uh, I'm a more modern, I, more attracted to modern art during the course of the research for this book. And by the way, from my first letter to Stefan Breitwieser to today, more than 11 years passed. So I worked on this project 11 years. So the Benzie Dictionary is basically like the Oxford English Dictionary uh, for the art world. It's, I believe, 20,000 pages across 13 or 14 volumes. And it's basically just any artist who's ever lived, you can look that up. It's just for, it's the perfect gift for the art geek in the world. I and what would Amazon charge you for this uh, 13 volume set? I, I know, I'm wondering if it's even translated into English. Um, I don't know, but I'm not, I'm gonna guess that it's uh, probably just cheaper to buy The Art Thief, my book. <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Oh, so let's go back to the beginning. The uh, sure. very first piece that they lift uh, is uh, uh, a, a, a small statue at the Peter Paul Rubens Museum in Antwerp, uh, and the uh, by Georges Patel, not an Indian, P-E-T-E-L, not in the hotel business in America. So, uh, what what precipitated that moment? And I'm trying to remember if there was preparation or thought or it just happened. So I think that when it comes to this someone is the first like that, one, right? They had stolen a few things previously. Let's we'll, we'll let's start at the beginning. So Brett Wieser, as I mentioned to you, um, sort of a sensitive kid, always um, attracted to objects, was sort of a moody and difficult child. His parents would drop him off at museums to wander around alone, and they thought that that was the perfect therapy for their son. He would come back in a much better mood. Uh, as he told me, he would look around for where the guards were and love to run his fingers across not just sculptures, but also paintings to feel the ridges, feel this connection. Kind of a strange phenomenon, but not un not unknown in the world of people that are aesthetically sensitive. His parents had a terrible split when he was 
a teenager. His father, who had a lovely collection of uh, ivory and antique weapons and watches and some um, oil paintings, took everything with him. Breitwieser um, broke off contact with his father, moved in with his mother. And his original contention was that he was trying to replace the collection that it used to be in his home that his father had owned. He fell in love with the girl, you mentioned her, Anne-Catherine Kleinklaus, and something about this love affair. Now, you can say all you want about the unhealthiness of this relationship, but everyone I've spoken to, including Brett Beezer himself, really, it was clear that these two fell in love, however unhealthy it may have been. And something about the combination of these two allowed them to steal at a pace unknown, like in the history of art thieving. And they, we will get to this ivory sculpture, but the very first thing he stole, in fact, the first several things that the couple stole together were antique weapons and things that his father may have owned and sort of this idea of replacing what his father had stolen. Now, Terrence, you know as well as I do that sometimes psychological motivations are sort of backfilled after what happens. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a credulous person at times, but not that credulous. And so I tend to believe that Brad Visa really did love art, but also really loved thieving. And some of these excuses, I mean, plenty of people break uh, are a child of divorce and don't resort to stealing. So some of these- It kind of sounds more like an addiction in a, in a way. And I think that's fair. You know, um, <clears throat> the contention that Brad Visa who stole 300 pieces of art, 200, you know, he averaged one theft every 12 days for more than seven years, which is an inconceivable pace. One art theft every 12 days, crazy, but doesn't fit the definition of kleptomania or an, an addiction to stealing. You know, he, if you're a kleptomaniac, you usually just want to steal something. You don't care what the object is. Bright Visa really cared about the specific object he, he stole. He curated really his theft. Yeah, he curated his theft. In fact, he considered himself a collector and not a thief. And then the other, uh, the other hallmark of um, addictive collecting or uh, kleptomania is that usually after you steal something, you, you have this letdown steeped in shame and regret. Like you feel terrible about yourself for stealing. But that was the exact opposite case with Brett Beezer and his girlfriend Anne Catherine. They celebrated. And, you know, were extraordinarily so happy that they kept a beautiful four poster bed in the room and uh, basically made love in front of their newest uh, acquisitions. It was the um, certainly he's a thief and loved it. But really, there was a huge aesthetic component to the whole thing, which sort of spun the story into this netherworld that I loved writing about. Let's go back to Adam and Eve and uh, just the, the, you know, the idea of walking into a museum in broad daylight and stuffing a, uh, a, a sculpture into your, into your coat or underneath your, uh, down your trousers and walking out with it. Uh, I mean, the audacity of it, but the ability to do it, to, you know, you mentioned it, you know, the end of your book when he steals your computer right in front of you. I mean, this guy was, you know, uh, amazing what he could do with his hands. Talk about that particular, that that first great uh, theft, if, if I'm, I might characterize it. I mean, let's let's use a Yiddish and a French expression at the same time. Let's go chutzpah. My, my readers and, understand both. Chutzpah and sang-froid. I mean, let's go with right. cold-bloodedness and daringness. I mean, uh, amazing. So Breitwieser, as you mentioned, all of his thefts were done in broad daylight, often with 
a guard or tourists in the room. He was like a master of deception, timing, chutzpah, bravery, skill, and let's be honest, a little bit of luck. He positioned his girlfriend as lookout. He His only tool that he used, the only thing he needed to steal really from a museum was a something like this, just a Swiss army knife. He was able to unscrew um, things that were bolted down, cut the edges of display cases, remove pictures and unscrew or manipulate the clips that hold the frame on the back. Stop for a second while you're saying that and imagine you're in the middle of the museum and this guy's over there, you know, how, how does no one see it, you know? Right. So I remember, so Brightfeaser not only gave me like f more than 40 hours worth of interviews, but also was, again, this did take 11 years of trust building, signed permission for me to read his psychology reports. And one interesting line that just come to, came into my mind, Terrence, was uh, one psychologist wrote that the most extraordinary thing about Breitwieser may have been that he was not extraordinary at all. He was slightly below average in size, very slight. He was had this very odd ability that I witnessed in person to sort of blend into a room to seem unnoticeable. And it's funny, human like a lot, this story changed the way I walk through museums, appreciate art, but also... It gave me insight through Breitwieser about the limits of human observation. You can get away with things right in front of someone if you do it in the smoothest manner possible. I think you made slight reference just a few minutes ago to this time I was interviewing Breitwieser inside one of those tiny, I mean, I, I don't know where your readers are, but America. Well, my readers are largely in the United States, but we're yeah, a so sizable well, here in Europe. Hotel rooms, as you know, all over Europe are very, very small. I can often put my hands on both walls at once. And the interview, Breitwieser, who was known in, in public, really liked to do interviews in private. And so I would rent these tiny little hotel rooms. There'd be one chair. I would sit on the luggage rack. And often I would put my laptop computer between us to look up things. I had the computer closed and I'm talking to him and I'm like, I really don't understand how you're able to steal something right under the nose of someone. Now, when I do an interview, just like now, I like to maintain eye contact, sure. but I also have a pen and a paper and every once in a while, I'll write down nonverbal cues, facial expressions, like funny little observations. And I'll just glance down for a second. And one time I glanced up in the middle of a series of questions about how one steals right from right from under your nose. And Bright Beezer says to me, well, did you see what I just did? <laughs> I thought he was joking. And he's like, look around. Now, I feel a little dumb telling you this because but this is another well, you told it to a hundred thousand potential okay. readers so you know i know but i'm but that way i can <laughs> you know I'm, I'm not a i'm not an actor i can like sort of separate myself from this right. but but it's funny the way i was talking about human behavior like you honestly sometimes don't notice the lack of something like you look around a room and nothing seems out of place you you're sort of the way your mind works is you don't notice something missing and he noticed brightweiser did this in museums and he had taken my laptop while i looked down put it behind his shirt and sat right back down in the course of i don't know a second and a half three seconds and i just simply didn't notice that my computer was no longer there just you don't notice an absence you notice a presence like if suddenly there was like you know a lava lamp there i would have been look look you put something there but taking something away the mind sort of has a lacuna, a gap. And he stood up during the interview, lifted up his shirt and said, I, you know, and showed me that he had right. taken my laptop. And I was like, sometimes a visceral, like a, 
a, pre a, a moment like that can say more than three hours of conversation. I was like, oh, my goodness, oh my I understand how you're able but to. But also, you know, it, it suggests why uh, prosecuting attorneys don't like to bring eyewitness testimony into the court because it's it's invalid in many ways. You know, someone sees what they want to see and we refuse to see something that's not in front of us. It was always there. You know, it's uh, I, 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 you know, I say you wonder, was he that? Was he that smart or is, did it just evolve uh, in, in his work? I mean, I think what you just said is really interesting on many levels, which is like human psychology comes into play. And I like uh, that question, what you just <clears throat> what you just asked, was he that smart or did he get a little lucky? I'm going to tell you that I think he was quite sharp when it came to reading human sort of the limits of human observation. He, I remember he was telling me about one of his thefts of something called an abrello, which is a old fashioned apothecary jar from like the 16th century. And he noticed that it was on a shelf, sort of in a weird spot in this, in this gallery of this museum that he just intuited that its absence would not be noticed. And he had this sort of idea that he would never steal on a guided tour when he wanted to stop stealing. And he and his girlfriend would sign up for a guided tour, they would be observed by a docent or a, a museum employee, and therefore their faces would be known. And then he had this sort of revelation when he saw this umbrella by itself in a gallery that he thought, you know, an art thief would never steal on a guided tour. And something that an art thief would never do is probably precisely what an art thief should consider doing. And he took this umbrella, put it in his, uh, I think he was allowed to have his backpack in the museum and just continued on the tour and nobody noticed its absence. And of course, if someone had, I think the last person they would suspect would be someone on a tour. And for this very same reason that at least once, Bright Visor and his girlfriend ate at the museum cafe lunch with millions of dollars of stolen goods from that very museum on their person. And you can imagine the police running in and the last person the police are going to accost are the people casually eating lunch. And so this ability to sort of short circuit or circumvent our expectations were either, I hesitate to use the word genius, but I'm not saying that there was pre, that he real Bright Visa was a really good at sort of determining where he, where human limitations were and exploiting and it things. seems that the only uh, the occasion when he 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 had a lot of uh confidence in in in, in Anne Catherine and uh let's not minimize uh, her value as you know as the lookout uh they, they were very complicit this was a uh, this was a love affair made uh, I don't know made, made it in a prison somewhere but they uh, they worked together seamlessly and he for the most part, he followed what she told him. Not always, unfortunately, for him, but she she pretty much guided him. Suddenly, think, very subtly, not you know. Yeah, the pairing of the two of them, you know, happenstance. They fell in love, but I think you're. I mean, this is the reason why I wrote a whole book about this. It doesn't happen every day. Somehow, the combination of their two personalities—one of them extraordinarily daring, one who sort of like flew off into flights of fancy, the other one who sort of was. Like, let's let's put some limits on this size wise, you know, observational wise. She, Anne Catherine set the limits. Brightweiser did a lot of the crime like a magician and a magician's assistant. They you could I mean, if you took away a magician's assistant, the whole magic trick falls apart. You know, she was she did all these subtle diversionary things and warned him with like <clears throat> like a cough in the doorway. And 
I think you're absolutely correct, Terrence, that the, one without the other would not have worked. And together, you know, miraculously or by some other reason that we were able to steal art like no, like nobody else in all of history. And they weren't professional thieves. It just sort of, it sort of worked out that way. Uh, and that was another, you know, just sort of riveting aspect. I wouldn't call them accidental thieves because you don't accidentally steal from 200 museums, but they, it's not like they, you know, considered themselves these amazing, um, criminals they considered themselves <laughs> as brightweiser put it in a, a phrase that i love just a a collector with an unorthodox acquisition acquisition <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah absolutely well he he sounds like a very interesting guy a very very savvy very witty uh what's he doing as we speak yeah, so I spent, uh, like I mentioned, more than a decade working on this project and dozens and dozens of hours with Bright Beezer. And to this day, reading, writing a whole book about him, I'm not quite sure how I feel about him. At times, I respect him. At times, I'm amazed. And at times, I'm sort of disgusted exploiting, you know, exploiting the trust of, you know, society. There's so many things wrong with modern society. But one of the great things of the world is public museums. I mean, we are... It, before the age of enlightenment, before 300 years ago, it seems like a long time, but before that, no common person like me or like you could see the well, the most amazing art in the world. They were locked up in wealthy people's homes. And sure. now that we have public museums, Breitweiser exploited that. So where is he now? Like any good Icarus story, there's got to be a crash. The wings melt. After 201, by my count, heists, successful heists, he did get caught and everything in his life fell apart. Now, I'm not going to give away the ending no, and no, what no, no, no. to the art, but he is under the control of the French penal system. I attended his final trial just in, this didn't even make it in the book. It was so recently, just in March of 2023, just a few months ago. Mm -hmm. And one of the sad things, I mean, Bright Beezer, he did his, when he was stealing every 12 days, he was in his 20s and early 30s, and now he's in his 50s. And it's a little bit sad. He came to the realization that this is a man who never really had a job. He devoted himself to stealing. He didn't monetize it. He did it for love. And he realized, as he told me, sort of, I can't believe I'm about to say about a thief's lines, sort of touchingly, yeah, yeah. he said to me that he was only really good at one thing in his in the world, and that was stealing art. And he well, some people are not good at anything. So he's a, <laughs> he's ahead of a lot of people. You know, I, I just want to parenthetically right. make a note when he was on one of these trials, I was reminded of, of Herman Goring, who at, at Nuremberg, when Judge uh, Justice Jackson was pointing out uh, how many millions of Jews he was responsible for or something in that vein, he corrected him. The, the number wasn't high enough. So he corrected the testimony because he was so smart. And, and in, in, in effect, in one of these trials, the prosecutor misidentifies something that he had stolen or its value, and he corrects him. It's, it's, it's not, not helpful to his cause, but he couldn't resist the being right. That's I kind of like the guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think Bright Visor, to me, has this like vein of endearingness. Like, like you just said, Terrence, he's on trial, facing years of prison time, but the thing he seems to care most about at his trial is not defending himself, not not trying to to minimize the sentence, but to make sure that all of the of the of the talking about 
the pieces of art he stole were precise and correcting the record. Oh, you know, that wasn't the master silversmith Hans-Peter Orre. That was a rep reproduction, like having these crazy intellectual discussions with people that are testifying against him. And the, the amount of charm that he exuded was such that people that were on the stand trying to get him imprisoned, you could see their faces sort of like, I remember one time a curator, it's mentioned in the book, like stops the whole sort of testimony and says, how did you, where did you read that? And he mentions the name of a scholarly journal and she's like taking notes about where Breitwieser had learned some things about this um, 17th century sword. And it's like, you're sitting there listening to this dialogue and it's as if uh, Breitwieser has just floated away out of reality and into the world of, you know, aestheticsness and 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 art. And I, I, I guess exactly it, has a parallel to what you mentioned with Goring. It's uh, it's dissociative, perhaps. Well, you know, and, and in a way, and go back to my. He used to be my favorite favorite Nazi, but no longer. I, I, my, my, my fiance is for Berlin, so I can't, I can't give him the, <laughs> the crown. But he had an an extraordinary amount of charm. I mean, you know, for, I mean, you know, well, he killed six million of our relatives, but he was an, he was an interesting guy. Oh, let's get the off favorite. Herman Goring. That's another book, you know. The, <laughs> my the favorite Nazi. Herman I, do, I do. I do like that as a title, by the way. My favorite. <laughs> well, never... yeah. Well, my favorite brunette was a Bob Hope film. My favorite Nazi would be a Mel Brooks <laughs> film. You know, we'll produce it. Uh, but let's mention a, a couple of pieces. We talk about the Madeleine de France and uh, <clears throat> Francois Pommier. Uh, let's mention a couple of the perhaps best known pieces that he acquired. Let's use the word acquire as opposed to stolen. Right. I think that Brad Beezer himself would love that word acquire. Or, uh, you know, he told me, well, what a billionaire just, you know, usually many billionaires have the, if you really dig into their finances, probably isn't the cleanest of all uh, fortunes. And, you know, if they came, they, they just wiring money to a dealer. He was unscrewing things with a Swiss army knife. Now, I tend to be a little bit more of a modern art aficionado, but Bright Fieser, without education, as we talked before, just purely out of emotion, really loved the late Renaissance, early Baroque period. And we're talking about the late 1600s into the 1700s. And uh, he liked Northern European painting, which used oil colors, Southern European, uh, like Florence, mostly used tempura, which is an egg white based paint at a little less, little more muted colors. So he had this specific love. And now he stole some of the greatest paintings of that era, the late Renaissance. Um, he stole Durer's, he stole Cranach's. Yeah, he stole uh, paintings by Watteau and Boucher. And these are names that I was not on a first, uh, you know, not completely familiar with, but had to re-educate myself. I remember taking art education courses, but suffice it to say that the greatest painters of the late Renaissance era, this is the era after painters broke away from church control and could paint what they wanted, especially genre scenes, scenes of life, these things that no more Christ on the cross, no more Mary holding the baby. These sort of the new age of painting, first time in history that paintings were signed and individual. And he loved this sort of burgeoning era where painters flowered and the number, the, the subject matter grew exponentially and the colors were luminous. And also let's be a little bit, uh, let's be a little less head in the cloudy about it. 
the paintings got smaller and they were a little bit easier to steal and hide in a jacket. So there are there there's a couple of nuts and bolts here. Besides, kind of like the paperback edition of your book. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so these were called um, uh, cabinet paintings, the size that he stole, and they they were specifically, you know, when you think about these grand tableaus, these grand. Um, canvases they were done for nobility to hang in their palatial estates their bastides and their castles but the new age was for the burgeoning middle class with smaller homes and he could put them on the wall and breitwieser loved to steal these so-called cabinet paintings uh, what is it about uh, let's go back to uh, cornet de lyon and madeleine de france and uh, and francois pommier talk, talk a little bit about that particular uh, painting yeah, I, 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 are you going to be showing like the? I would love to show you a, a photo. Of no, unfortunately, it's not going to be videoed. But okay. I, I could, I can grab some images when I, I publish the supporting article. Yeah, a, a, several years ago, a team of um, a group of French um, art experts and professors decided determined what they felt were the most historically important and greatest paintings in all of France and Madeleine de France. Uh, Madeleine de, yeah, de France, yeah, de France. A, a, a beautiful portrait of the daughter of Francois the first, one of the the, the French king that uh, purchased the Mona Lisa. This famous brought Leonardo uh, to France, right? Exactly. Gave him, gave him a ticket. His daughter. Uh, so the, uh, this beautifully restrained, understated painting of his daughter, which is the plain green black background, was was chosen by this uh, group of French uh, academics as one of the most important paintings in France. It had been hanging in a museum in the Loire Valley in the same place for 138 years until Breitwieser came along, fell, oh my God, the way he described it to me, like tears coming down his eyes, smitten by this painting, small one, perhaps the size of the of the, of the, the of art a, of cover book. It was in this monumental double frame in the, entryway to this museum the most crowded spot and bright Beezer with his astonishing talent to read a room and work quickly as he stole my computer right under my nose was able to remove this painting that had been there for almost a century and a half stick it in actually he stuck it in the front of his pants because he realized that all the guards would be looking at the front he turned his back to them and with it in the front of his pants walked right out the door and it baffled everyone and it was never solved, this crime. Are you going to bring a Ricky Jay back from the grave to play I mean, Bright Visor in the movie? I mean, I, I agree with what you said. He had that, you know, that magician's touch. I love the way you mentioned Ricky Jay or right, any of the famous um, uh, uh, magicians. He had that ability. That he, I mean, he might have been a good pickpocket, but he was interested in art. It was only Richard Woodmark. There is no other pickpocket. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, uh, why don't we uh, uh, close out by talking about his comeuppance? How did he get caught after 201 successful heists? Uh, well, I mean, if you ask Bright Beezer, he'll say it was his girlfriend's fault, but that's what a lot of us might say about about but most um, things in life. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, one, I mean, I can't, he, he pushed the levels of risk to to uh he spun he spun the die die so many times had so many close calls that it seemed inevitable but gosh once you get to 120 140 150 200 heists he felt perhaps appropriately at least so invincible and had a little bit of bad luck as all of us will eventually and was arrested stealing a um a a 
basically he tried to see stole a um a hunting horn a, a musical instrument from the Wagner Museum in Switzerland his girlfriend was getting increasingly nervous we talked about Anne Catherine and her trying to limit the, their risk she insisted that he no longer Put, leave his fingerprints around. He stole without wearing gloves, left his fingerprints anywhere, everywhere. She was getting increasingly concerned, made her boyfriend promise that he, he would wear surgical gloves when he stole. He didn't wear them on that particular crime, stealing the hunting horn from the Wagner Museum. She made them, they were turned to erase fingerprints, which by the way, is not a good idea. So many people touch displays that there's a hundreds of fingerprints all over them. If you're going to steal art, for your listeners, don't worry about erasing your fingerprints. There's many other things to worry about. They were actually caught not stealing, but trying to cover up a crime. They returned to the scene of a crime against his better judgment and was caught. And once Breitwieser was in the criminal system, everything in his life began to fall apart. And it did so in a really heartrending way. I mean, he deserved it for sure. But uh, without saying, you know, what happens at the well, let's, end. Well, let's save that for people to experience it, on, on their own. The, uh, has uh, someone bought the movie rights yet? I have sold the, I've optioned the rights to the book. I mean, I really enjoyed writing this book, but when you're talking about art and thieves, there's a lot of, there's a visual component to it. And it really is, a story that could work well, not only in a book, I'm proud of the book. And I used a lot, you know, I tried not, I read a lot of art books while preparing to write my own. I don't like reading pages of descriptions about art. That's why there's eight pages of, of color of photos. And I never spend any time describing a piece of art. You should just, you know, let's talk about more of his actions, but yes, I have optioned the rights to the movie, to the, to the book. And we'll see if it actually becomes a movie. That's a multi year process, but um that has already happened. Well, as I don't know if you remember, it was uh, not uh, John Gregory Dunn in his, wrote a book called Monster. Do you know the book? I've, yes, I do. I yeah, remember. about, uh, you know, he, he said he, uh, that his movie never got made, but, but all of the options he collected over 10 years, he, he buried three relatives. Uh, he, was, he had the same wife, so he didn't change her. But lots went on, and every every couple of years, boom, another check went into the bank. Uh, so that that's the movie business, which is another thing entirely. Uh, Michael, it's been great talking. This has been fun. Uh, I, uh, I will, this will be available fairly soon on the, uh, at my site in conjunction with the, with your pub date. Um, and, uh, I look forward to catching up with you. Send me your email. I have your email. Send me your phone number. I want to follow up for a second, but I don't want to, I want to do it off here. I don't want to broadcast your phone number over the internet because it'll be, well, whatever. <laughs> They'll be looking for autographed books. Once again, the name of the book is The Art Thief. My guest has been Michael Finkel and, uh, Hope to see you in Paris and uh, good luck with the book and congratulations on the book and uh, a good tour. Terrence, thank you for having me on the show. And I can just tell by talking to you that we could pass an entire evening, as long as we had a couple of nice bottles of wine. You yeah. are such a pleasure to speak with. Uh, and <laughs> and we're, like we're, two, have... we're two Jewish guys from the hood, man. You know, As my father said when he saw me on television for the first time, uh, as I was a guest on, on a show, and, and he looks at us, he talks. He's been talking for 40 years, you know. <laughs> you, never get any, you never get any compliments from your parents. All Thanks right. again. Talk Thank to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us. And for all things Parisian, visit my website, paris-expat.com. That's paris-expat.com. 
and subscribe to my six free weekly newsletters. Until next time, I'm Terrence Kalenter, your American friend in Paris.